Hey, y'all, flipping it up on the podcast this week. This is part of our new Founders series. As a co-founder of Food Beast, I'm fascinated by the come-up stories of different successful food entrepreneurs. So one of the stories I've been dying to unfurl involves Chef Andrew Gruel. He's been on TV, he's a champion of sustainable seafood, and he's the founder of Slapfish Restaurants, what Forbes calls the Chipotle of seafood. As any real founding story would have it, Andrew's journey is filled with borrowing money from friends, pooping his pants in public, crack houses out in Maine, and this one monstrous 75-unit multi-million dollar Middle East deal that totally fell through and nearly bankrupted his entire company. Without further ado, cue that intro music, Bray. Let's start from the top. First of all, okay. thank you. Thank you for being here, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. You're the man. I appreciate that. You're I appreciate man. that. You having me, not saying I'm the man, but I appreciate you having me. <laughs> I feel like I'm in the I'm in the presence of uh, of celebrity here, as I said. Dude, I've been following Slapfish for so long. Since the truck. I want to talk about the truck because we could talk about the truck real quick and then we could jump back to you being a little baby in New Jersey. But, oh yeah. Yeah, that I, that far back. So you were born in Jersey? I'm a Jersey boy. Yep. Jersey yep. boy. Do I smell like Taylor Ham? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know what Taylor Ham is? No, what is Taylor it's to- Ham? It's a total New Jersey thing. Taylor pork roll. It's like the pork roll that's a mix between bologna and salami and it comes in cloth. It like comes in a sock. And you get what? Taylor Ham egg and cheese as like the breakfast staple in New Jersey. That sounds amazing. Is oh, that like Scrapple out in Philadelphia? It, it, oh, yeah. It's is like it like scrapple. that? It's like the Scrapple but without the cornmeal. See, that's dope because no one outside of Philadelphia knows what Scrapple is because it didn't make the jump that yeah. a Philly cheesesteak made. Yeah. So, like, I feel like Jersey's known for other things. I didn't know that at all. Taylor like Ham? Taylor Ham. Yeah, Taylor Ham. It's like the breakfast. Actually, when we opened the first Slapfish, we did Taylor Ham, Egg, and Cheese. And funny <laughs> enough, like, people were flocking in that were like, oh, I'm from Jersey. You've got a Taylor Ham, Egg, and Cheese. I'm like, yeah, grab a lobster roll. They're like, oh, we don't eat seafood. We just were here for the Taylor Ham, Egg, and Cheese. <laughs> it didn't have any like, seafood on it? it? No, no. It was just, that was like, it, it was a total, like, non, non sequitur. It made no sense at all. It was like lobster roll, fish taco, Taylor Ham, Egg, and Cheese. I guess that, that can happen when you own your place. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm just going to put this shit on there. It doesn't make any exactly. sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty much story of my life. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's funny. Jersey. We got so how it. long were you in Jersey? Like, what, how long were you in Jersey before you moved? Uh, so I grew up in New Jersey. I okay. went to school there, went, to, went, to, uh, went through high school, and then I left when I, when I, right out of high school, and I actually moved and lived in Maine. I went to college in Maine. I love I went Portland, to a, Maine. Uh, right outside of Portland, like right. 45 minutes outside of Portland in a little town called Lewiston, right? Okay. And the funny thing about Lewiston is that it, it's the, actually the crack capital of the East, <laughs> but yet in the middle of it, there's this beautiful private university, and then outside of that, it's just this horrific, like, worn-down town. And when you drive in... I remember my mom was driving me to college. There's a big sign for like a window store and it's like the crack stops here. I'm like, that is the best marketing and branding I've ever seen. Like oh use it to your advantage. Uh, so so uh, Maine is, Maine is gorgeous. Uh, it's such a, like a fishing area. Like yep. is that, is that where your roots and seafood yeah, so came? That, that's, that was it. So when I was going to college up there, I was really working 40, 50, 60 hours a week just with a, at a lobster restaurant and then stayed through that first summer working on the docks, the lobster docks, working in a restaurant, like packing lobster rolls. Um, and that's not a euphemism. And, uh, <laughs> and then, and, uh, it got the bite. So I went back into my second year at college and of course, you know, I was doing the silly, like liberal arts study and I was like, I'm going to be a philosopher. Yeah. What were and, you studying? Uh, I was studying, uh, philosophy. Um, we'll, we'll call it, uh, we'll, we'll, let's just say, uh, herbology and, uh, in Maine. And, uh, <clears throat> I was like, this isn't, you know, I'm not going to waste money being here anymore. So I actually, I, I 
dropped out of college and what? I was like, I'm going to cook. Right. But I want to go out West. I was like reading all this, like Jack Kerouac. I was like, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be just like a, you know, a beat writer and live in the woods. And I hitchhiked out to, uh, Montana, hitchhiked all around what? and, uh, got a job working for the Grand Teton Lodge company right outside of Yellowstone, Jackson Hole, Wyoming cooking. What did you, I mean, are your parents around at this point? Did they like, do they co-sign you just dropping out of school? No, not at all. They, it was kind of like, they were like, Andrew's finding himself. I had like a full head of like dreadlocks. I went home and my dad was like, Andrew, we need to let you know, like, we're not, we're not Jamaican. Like, it's not in our, it's not in our lineage. Uh, what are you doing, buddy? Um, but you know, they, they, look, they embraced it. Uh, they, they were like, he'll, he'll figure it out. But uh, what was really cool was, is that that was it. Like, that was the start of the journey. So I started using the restaurant as an opportunity to travel, uh-huh. make money and work in all these different places because my skills were transferable across state or country lines. Yeah. So I was working in restaurants in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Grand Tetons, and ultimately did an apprenticeship and a stage out in Oregon on top of Mount Hood at Timberline Lodge. Uh, beautiful. It's where they, like the shining view at the end when he's like yeah. overlooking that mountain. Uh, and uh, and then, uh, yeah, that was, that was then. Then ultimately went back to school. Damn. So, you, so then you went to culinary school after that? And yeah. Then I moved out from Oregon uh, to Denver, wanted to stay in the whole like big wild west thing, went to, lived in Denver and uh, studied uh, culinary arts and um, food service management out there. Holy cow. Good okay. Time. So you so you have your traditional, you have your bearings straight. Like you went to culinary school and you did. Yeah. Went, eventually did get my, get my shit together and went back. Can I curse? Can I <laughs> yeah, say that? Yeah. You can say whatever the fuck you want. Right. There you go. I, I don't know. I don't know if this is FCC, KBD, KBFWA. No, this is, uh, yeah, this is, this is internet. <laughs> okay. People oh, this will is the listen. Internet. This is All the right. internet. Okay, it's so the then internet. we can mention that I'm not wearing pants. Yeah, 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 yeah. we're both naked. Actually, <laughs> this is the weirdest podcast we've ever done. Yeah, no, no, no. It is an emphasis on pod. Um. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so okay, so you you went to school, and then what? What bro? Did you immediately go out to California? What? what no, no. So what so sorry. Next? So I, I kind of went off on a tangent there. So went through the culinary thing. Went moved. After culinary school and working in Denver for a while, mm-hmm. I went out to uh, Boston, Massachusetts, went back to go okay. work for the Ritz-Carlton at the original. The original Ritz-Carlton was actually right there in Boston, Mass., like right on the public gardens. I don't know if you're familiar with Boston or Massachusetts. I know Boston's really small. Yep, and I know small. you're hitting all the seafood hotspots exactly, yeah. on your journey. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You're following where I'm, I'm plotting these little dots. And mm-hmm. uh, so working out there for a couple of years with the Ritz and then went back to school again while I was working out there for a business program at uh, Johnson & Wales in Rhode Island. So I was commuting, did food marketing, and uh, and then ultimately went and uh, kind of got into a venture with my brother-in-law's brother up in New Hampshire, he had a coffee shop out there and was trying to expand into a full-service restaurant and catering company. And it was it was on a farm. Okay. So I went up there, took that over with him, and we grew out like kind of multiple venues, restaurants right on uh, Lake Sunapee. We had like our own farm. I mean, it was just this crazy pre-farm-to-table experience. Yeah. Where we were like legitimately, we were milking our own. So you said you're, I mean, you mentioned food marketing in there. Mm-hmm. Like, is that was, what was your focus when you're helping, helping like create this? Were you, were you doing marketing there or were you actually sourcing? Were you cooking? What were you doing? No, it was all, it was, it was culinary. It was just hands on, awkward. like running a kitchen, hiring a band of pirates, you know, doing yeah. big weddings, caterings, opening little restaurants up there. It was a cool experience. But, uh, but then after that, that, uh, you know, kind of died down, I went back to New Jersey so I went back to New Jersey for a great opportunity to, to open up some restaurants along the coast there. That took me into 2009, right, when the economy took a dump. Yeah. We were expanding through this restaurant group, and then they started to retract and, and pull back a little bit. And I was like, you know, I'm going to take some time off and uh, find 
something outside of the restaurant industry because I was a little burnt out, but still within the restaurant industry. So totally crazy, random scenario. There was still a lot of nonprofit money that was available, right? Okay. Private equity had dried up during the recession. Yeah. And out in California at the Aquarium of the Pacific, they got a grant from the Pacific Life Foundation, which is the the giving arm of Pacific Life Insurance here in Newport, um, to start a sustainable seafood program within the Aquarium of the Pacific with a focus not so much on consumers, but actually teaching chefs how to menu sustainable seafood, connecting chefs with fishermen and aquaculturists, and really learning about the whole seafood supply chain. It was a two-year program. Um, it was just like kind of an in-and-out type of thing. They brought me in to direct that program. I was I created that program oh, um, wow. for them. Yeah. I got to fly around, visit fish farms, meet fishermen, work with regulatory bodies, like work with scientists. I had a marine biologist who worked with me to assess seafood. Yeah. And uh, and in doing that, I just got so immersed in the seafood kind of conundrum. Really, that's what it is. Because the seafood supply chain is fucking crazy and scary. Yeah. Um, that I realized at that point, I was like, okay, I'm not going back to New Jersey. I want to open up, a, use all this knowledge, everything I know, because and it's ripe for seafood. In, in California, we consume two times the amount of seafood than anybody else in other states. In, I had no in idea. The US. Yeah, massive seafood consumption out here. But where's our options for seafood, right? On the one end of the spectrum, you kind of have white tablecloth, fine dining seafood. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, you got like greasy fried. You have your Rubio. Yeah, yeah, that stuff. Okay. And and so it was like, okay, let's do something cool, fun, sexy that's seafood oriented. Yeah. Um, and thus Slapfish was born. So Slapfish happened. Okay. Well, one, I think your time at the aquarium is really fascinating because. I didn't really understand what you were doing there, but now I like. So you were building a program. I didn't even know what te- I was doing. You were build- <laughs> <laughs> You were teaching other people about the ecosystem. Like you were yeah. teaching. Like you weren't just like. And so through that, you essentially like yeah. I'm, instead of continuing to teach, I'm gonna like almost put something into practice because you're like, yeah. oh shit, I can actually monetize on this. I yeah. can actually continue to spread the message but make money doing it yeah and i'm a chef by trade right so i'd never been out of the restaurants for that was the longest i've ever been you out were of a fish out of water fish is, i love this i love this let's yeah. start with the fish puns this will be good it's good i mean we're naked and there's fish puns yeah so exactly I'm flopping around right now you feel me costa <laughs> just kidding yeah you got that's good that's good i've got all i've got is one oyster okay so, so the economy <laughs> sucks right now yeah the economy sucked what, what year is this right now Two, like, now we're notes? now we're into 2011 but what i'll mention about the program that was cool was basically the ceo jerry schubel who's a brilliant man of the aquarium of the pacific this guy is like one of your most prominent scholars in the world of not just seafood, but everything kind of uh, marine stewardship related. Uh-huh. He basically was like, look, I'm here as a resource. And I worked in the in the executive offices, had a little like cubicle in there. He's like, create this program yeah. with the goal of getting people to eat more seafood. That was actually the it's kind of funny, right? Because it's an aquarium and they're like, eat more seafood. Right. You know, that's weird. That's the goal. That was your mission statement. That's it. Like that's get people. It. Yeah. Wow. Because because Number one, you're you're supporting fishing communities. Sure. The, the economy behind oil and automobiles are the largest trade deficit we have. So the third largest in the U.S. is seafood. We what? import over eighty percent of our seafood. So the goal of this program was let's figure out why are we importing so much seafood? Where can we? Is it good seafood we're importing? Is it crap? Is it sustainable? By definition, meaning like, is it harming the surrounding ecosystem sure. when it's fished? Is it at risk of being overfished? Because so, we have great coasts here. What's that? We have great, oh, huge coasts on both the, sides. <laughs> the, the, the U.S. has the largest coast. 
the U.S. So so 200 miles off the coast of any country is called an exclusive economic zone. You that country owns that coastline. The way that the United States is kind of geographically structured, we actually own like the majority of the ocean, fishable waters. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> That's tight. <laughs> it, it, it's it's. There's a statistic behind it. I don't know what yeah. the hell it is off the top of my head. So, so what was interesting is, is like this program was like I was going to Whole Foods. I partnered with Whole Foods. I would go do cooking demos at Whole Foods. I was uh-huh. like that guy <laughs> with with like forty housewives that are like, "How do I cook trout?" And I'm like, "Eat more trout. It's sustainable and it's from the U.S." And yeah. then I'd be like, "Here, have a glass of wine." They'd get wasted and then they'd walk away and be like, "I'm going to eat more trout." And like that was my job. That was their take. That was my job. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a fun. There's a trouser trout joke in here somewhere. <laughs> I'm, I'm searching for it. Yeah. It's coming. Get it? Anyways, um, that's okay. So that that happens, and 2011, the economy's dirt. Yeah. But there's a food truck revolution happening. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. And that I, you're one of the beacons of that. I would say I can say that. I appreciate that. Like I appreciate that. Yeah, I remember. You know, and I give it to like I give it to the guys from the lime truck. Like they were. I remember going out. I was like, man, what's this food truck? I'd kind of seen like there was murmurs, right? You had you had Kogi, that was kind of like the big deal, but but that was almost like an outlier or or like a one off. You didn't you didn't see it scale as an industry, right? So it was still a little nerve wracking and. You know, I'm like, how am I going to beta test this concept that I have? And I remember going to like a food truck lot and seeing the lime truck and was like, I remember looking and Jason Quinn was cooking in the truck. And I was like, man, so this guy's got a, he's a chef. He's got a background in there. Like he's putting some good food out of this food truck. So to me, it was kind of this eureka moment. Like it can be done. Yeah. And there was really only two or three trucks. I think it was like the lime truck. It was like Rancho Gogo or or there was like, what brought you to that lot though? Like, cause, cause as a chef, I mean, you had never thought of, had you thought of food trucks before? Like your whole experience, the years before where you're like, my goal is cook food off a truck. So I'll tell you a funny story. When I was living in Boston, right in Boston, Boylton, Boylston street, like at the end people get wasted, bars spill out. Everybody's looking for that pizza spot. I had an old, like Toyota Tacoma pickup truck and what I used to do is in my apartment which was like five miles away I used to make grilled cheese sandwiches and put them in tinfoil and then I would put a blanket over them I'd drive up my pickup truck and I'd sell grilled cheese sandwiches out of the back of my truck to all these drunkards at like 2.30 in the morning okay so it's funny because I look back on it and I swear I was thinking I was like how can I like recreate the the truck right uh, so I, I consider myself to have one of the original food trucks <laughs> you know, out in Boston in okay. 2001 2002 um, but really it was like like what's a creative way to get the brand out without having to raise the capital to open a restaurant? Yeah. So you can do a couple things, right? I could go to farmers markets. I could pop up at a farmers market. There's nothing sexy about that. Like yeah. that's not fun. Or you could do, you know, it was kind of like what are the ways in which I could do this? And just saw a couple food trucks drive by. Was like, oh, I wonder if I could pull this one off. What's funny because you mentioned the lime truck. The lime truck I consider early on, along with Slapfish, the ones that branded the best. Like you guys out of the gate, when the first time I saw a slapfish truck, I think you had one truck, and I want to learn more about how many you came out the gate with. Uh, let's assume one. I was like, this feels like it should have a hundred stores already. Like That's awesome. th- th- from the branding alone. So like, what what happened? Like you decided you just you have the capital to open up a truck. Like how much does that cost? No, no, I didn't have any money at all. <laughs> I mean, I was working for a nonprofit, right? So yeah. just think about that. I mean, I was just, I was to live in California and work for a nonprofit, you're losing money. Yeah. So. This was like a two-year, let me spend my savings to live in California and work for a nonprofit. And then it was like, oh, shit, I got to do something before I move back to Jersey. And uh, I took out credit cards. And um, literally, we like 
we were leasing the truck week on week. So it was like $1,300 to lease the truck. So all I had to do was put up the money to lease the truck. Before we came out and wrapped the truck, I had actually leased it and drove around with a banner on the side of it, Slapfish, and I did a couple <laughs> school events. Just to and see. And it was an old taco. It was like the, the roach coach. I still have a picture of the old truck. Um, and then got a little bit of money, maxed out the credit card, wrapped it. The wrap cost $2,800. So you maxed out your credit card to lease the truck. Was yeah. that like for 1300 Was that like a month or a week? Or? It was a week. So you, you, it was like $1,300 a week to lease. Um, and uh, and then um, you, know, you got to try and generate those sales, which you can. And uh, and then it was just like calling up buddies I knew in the fishing at seafood side of things because I we the, our whole model was getting the seafood direct. So it was the contacts that I had made from the aquarium, get the fish I needed, get out there on the truck. Yeah. Um, no, we, our fryer didn't work, so we never did anything fried. Everything so it was, was grilled out the gate. Yeah. It was grilled out the gate. And what's funny about that is is that one of our most popular items, the major crunchy, I put potato chips on the sandwich because yeah. I needed that texture. Yeah. And I was like, I have no fryer. So that was the the genesis of the major crunchy yeah. was because we, our fryer was broken and now it's like one of our signature items, just potato chips packed on a sandwich. What? That sandwich is bomb, by the way. What? So it's thir- it costs you $1,300 a week yeah. to get one truck. To get one right? truck, yep, yep. And so, I mean, you max a credit card out there. Mm-hmm. You got it. I mean, it costs you money to get the fish. You did your wrap, which says like a couple grand. Yeah. On top of that, yep. are you nervous? Like, fuck. Like, what if I? Oh yeah. What if I don't make the thirteen hundred back this week? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 a total. I mean, that's, those are those things. It's funny because I even look back on it now. Like, I'm my my aversion to risk has changed so much now being married and having kids. Yeah. Like at the time, it was just like, well, whatever. Like, figure it out. Like, yeah. What's the worst that can happen? I'll ignore these credit card. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Companies like when they call. Yeah. Like. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. I still do that. But uh, <laughs> who does it? <laughs> you know. Uh, but it. But it. It's. Uh, yeah. Like, this could totally go bust. And plus the fact that having my background been more fine dining, like full service. It's fun and sexy now to be like, yeah, I've got this food truck and like going out to these lots and there's like promo girls and it's like so cool and hip and food beast is going to cover me, you know, like you got heard of those guys. And, uh, and, uh, but at the time it was like, you're a fucking food truck. <laughs> like I didn't want to tell my buddies back home. Like I want to Oh be yeah. Like, so the, the, the stigma wasn't as cool then. No, not at all. Not at all. Cause you like, came from running like big restaurant and then all of a sudden you're like, that's not, is, it, is yeah. Andrew all right? Like yeah. I heard he's like slinging he's shit a off trucker. a truck. He's like, a trucker. Yeah, exactly. Like he's peddling uh, dead fish out of the back of a Cadillac. Cause this is, <laughs> is this pre, is this pre like the great food truck race on food network? Oh, yeah. oh this is before all this stuff. That was before uh, any of that, that stuff got coverage. Okay. okay. It was immediately thereafter that the lime truck, like, we, we went in May. The first day I was out on the road, it was like May 2nd. Uh, this was 2011. And we did we went through that summer, and I think the lime truck went, went on the race later that summer. And they won. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was huge. And, it was huge. Uh, and that kind of blew it up. That, yeah. like, blew up the food truck thing. But at that time, I want to say it was us. It was a lime truck. Seabirds. Yeah. There was maybe four or five trucks that were just constantly. Oh, Dos Chinos. Yeah. Constantly on route. But then when we left, when I pulled out of the, the food truck game in, like, December of that same year because we were only we were in and out it was it was May yeah, you, December so you immediately got rid of the truck oh, yeah yeah like I was it, like the minute that I can I can pivot into a brick and mortar like I'm out of this I oh it was because it was horrible man <laughs> it was literally a bridge for you like it wasn't anything you knew that you weren't going to be in the truck for a long time yeah like, like when was, you look back I look back the other day I was going through my old business plans I called it a mobile marketing campaign I was a, like a mobile marketing campaign. Yeah, okay. I called it the mo- I thought I was fucking cute. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a mobile marketing campaign and it was uh, but at one point but we went from 
at the peak of the summer, we at one point had four trucks concurrently rolling. So yeah, w- what point do you go from one truck? You're like, all right, this is cr-. first of all, I have no idea how you hire people. Like, if you're using credit card, <laughs> like, how do you like? Who, who, was it buddies like getting on the truck no, and helping you? No, so you, for or? the first day, it was it was the first day it was me and uh, it was it was literally just me and then I had a buddy who was helping me out with it at the time and just driving the truck, like going to the event, like I would drive there, load it up with ice, get in at five o'clock in the morning, load the truck up with ice, get the product in there, start to do a little bit of prep work, go out to the first event, usually gotta be there by 10, get up ready for service at 11, two o'clock roll back to the lot, fill the truck back up with ice, buy the supplies again with the cash you made from lunch, go back out, do it again for dinner, maybe do a late night service, you're back in at like one o'clock in the morning and turn around and do it again for six o'clock the next day. So after a week of two of doing that, I had a little bit of cash so I could hire a person to help me do that, hired one person. Yo. Second person I hired, funny enough, Ryan Garlitos, who owns Irina, the Shut restaurant. Up. Yeah, he was my second hire. What? He was going to school at uh, Art Institute. My first hire um, uh, actually works with Ryan now, Ruben. Uh, he was over at, uh, I mean, these guys, it was funny. Ryan was at culinary school at the time, but he didn't have much restaurant experience. And the other dude, Ruben now, He's worked through the whole restaurant scene. Like all these guys that we ended up hiring, it's so funny, are now either like... They cut their teeth on Slapfish and then like are doing some crazy shit now. They were loading a truck up with ice, like pooping their pants. (laughs) Because there's no bathroom. So, you know, that's what you got to do. Oh my God. You just poop. Do you guys wear diapers on the truck? I make a joke joke about that. I'm actually not kidding. Because me, I was like, so we get the truck, we go out. Like, where do we go to the bathroom? That's those are the things I think about. Like... I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, all right, stock up on Imodium. <laughs> <laughs> Would you have done the great food truck race if, it, if that timed out for you? Or were you like, nah, it's like not for me? No, because I knew my goal was to get in and get out. My goal mm. was to get a restaurant open. Anything that was going to detract from that, I wasn't going to do it. So we had people reach out to us to do various shows and this and that. And it was like, I'm not going to commit to doing that. The only one we did was there was this show, Eat Street, on Cooking Channel. Yeah, I remember. And... uh and it was really cool. It was an awesome show, actually. And they filmed us. And when that went to air, we had opened the restaurant. When it actually aired, we got slammed, like, just from that show. Like, who watches that? Nowadays, yeah. I don't know if that would happen, but I think at that time, it was still, like, people were really watching a lot of those That shows. was where people were getting their food content at the time yeah. solely, like, yeah. exclusively. Yeah. Outside, uh, yeah, there was, and, like, Instagram wasn't big on Yeah, your you Facebook know. videos, like, yeah. aren't as big, but, yeah, that that's crazy. But what it did for us was it gave us credibility. So we were able to say, like, as seen on Food Network right. and use that kind of, that street cred yeah. when we opened the restaurant. And I think that helped us big time. So in the early days of the truck, how are you getting people, like, how were you getting customers? Like, were you showing up to the right places? Were you on Twitter? Like, what was the Facebook, deal? Man. It Facebook, man. Facebook. Well, Twitter, yeah, Twitter a little bit, but, you know, everybody says like, oh yeah, Twitter was all about like, we're gonna be at this location. Didn't really work that that way for us. Our, our audience was all Facebook, but there was no filtering on Facebook then. Like, mm. the algorithms were probably really simple. It was yeah. probably like, you, either you're a jackass or you're not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 it was raw. Like, there's yeah. no like, all right, well. Yeah. So Facebook was huge for you early on. Yeah, yeah, really big. Okay, okay, so now, the truck, not even a year, maybe like before you opened up your. We went. Truck? So we 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 went. Uh, we signed our lease. So truck. When the weather started being crappy here in SoCal, I was like, we can't go through the winter. Like we don't have money. Like we didn't pile up money, right? We were break even. If anything, we lost. Oh, a little the bit of California money. syndrome. Yep. You're talking exactly. about like. So you had okay peak of trucks. You had four. Yeah, four we were like around. renting. We were doing catering events and Got stuff. It. So we'd have trucks out on the road. We the most we had wrapped and concurrently rolling was two full-time trucks which is still huge so you had two full-time trucks immediately yeah and then 
it, I'm guessing it rained for a couple of days and like yeah. no one like, came out. It was like, yeah, and I saw that coming. So it's like we have to get in. We have to leverage kind of this brand equity that we've built up because come next May, like that's gone. That's burnt off, yeah. right? There's only a certain attention span people have for that. And sure. then somebody with capital is going to come in, copy what we did and take over. Yeah. So at that point, it was get into a brick and mortar. Like okay. I don't care where it is, what it is, get in. Like. So we, we, we found, no, but, but landlords won't lease to you because a landlord's like, oh, cool, that's great. I want to see a million on the balance sheet. Like, that's a liability. Why would I lease somebody who has no money in the bank, yeah. no brand, real brand presence, sure. a space? Like, what's my security on that space? Yeah. A personal guarantee, you know? Yeah. So, and you don't have any, do you have anything at this point? Like, how are you like, so how do you get into a brick and mortar? Because well, that's like a dream for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, that's the hard part, right? So then it was about, it was, it was sm smoke and mirrors, man. Like, <laughs> build a story, get a pitch deck, make yourself look a lot bigger than you are, go to the landlord, and then what you have to do what you have to do is find someone with a lease that they want to get out of you Ooh. can buy i bought into a lease see i didn't have the landlord give me the space i bought some guy's lease and i said to the landlord he's going to go bankrupt anyway and you're going to have a dormant space let me just take over the remaining term you'll have no lease. turnover you're good so it was two and a half years left on this lease in this old bagel shop. This dude sold me this, sold me his business, right? Uh -huh. Which in included like a bag of moldy bagels and like a horrible plumbing system. And it was awful. Our first Huntington Beach location. That place was a shithole. Like I can't even tell you how nasty it was in there. And uh, and the landlord's like, all right, you got two and a half years. You damn well. But oh, plus he's like, I want twenty five thousand dollars in a security deposit. What? To to like secure my sure. position. So. So we got the space. I borrow money, like five thousand dollars, three thousand, like literally scrapping the money to buy the business from the guy. And then it's like, okay, now I've got this space. Now I got to get the money to to Run. make it a restaurant. Yeah. To make it like a slapfish. Um, so we did that. We signed that lease, bought that business the end of December two thousand eleven, and we opened April April twentieth, two thousand twelve. Yeah. In that space, so it was four months. Of just like trying to figure out, do a build out. Like, and you're not running the truck at this point. Nope, is everything no just like we're paused for a little bit? Yep. And then, it, it the and then it's how do I keep telling the story we're going to open without people losing focus of us? Yeah. So it was just this four month like. That's why we ended up like we did that campaign where if you, I did for two months I strung out on social like if you come up with a really cool dish for our menu we'll name it after you and you eat for free for a year. Yeah. So I'd like oh, wow. go from like that. 30 submissions to 25 to 20 and like that was my content for two months to keep our, us relevant on Facebook. It was like, Brilliant. here we go. Here's the top 25. <laughs> like 24. Like shit, we got to open. Fuck. So you and completely own the first one. Like, yeah. What's, what's yeah. Going on? Like you, yep. you, okay, so this is your spot. Yep. That's great. What are the major differences between, I mean, the food truck outside, food truck, brick and mortar, major differences outside of like the wheels, I'm assuming <laughs> you can't move the place. If, yeah. if you're not working in Huntington Beach, like you're yeah. fucked. But so to what's, what are totally the different demographic? So the people that go to food trucks are like, they're, they're daring They're It's a culinary scavenger hunt, right? So it's like the heart, you know, 18 to 22, like my dad's not going to go to a food truck event. Right. Now he might, cause it's, it, it's graduated into something that's pretty, pretty mainstream. But yeah. then so it was like convincing our existing demographic to now come into a brick and mortar because what we realized was they liked us but they were like no no but it's cool to keep going and checking out food trucks like we don't want to go to a brick and mortar right so there was a little bit of a, of a variance there and a, and a we kind of had to figure out like okay we got to increase our target audience like the size figure out how the hell we're gonna get people in here yeah 
That's okay, so that's scary. So was it a smashing success out of the gate or? Yeah, there was a, there was the there was the initial like we this is the, one of the first brick and mortars or first food trucks to go brick and mortar. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of like the wonder effect where people wanted to check it out. Yeah, funny enough, like that location. First of all, the location at the time was a shithole. Like that was an awful location. They've since put like twenty million dollars into that center. They built it out. Like it's this nice center now. I, I claim that we did all that. <laughs> well, you were you were the. The, the flagship almost for that center. Well, I say that, but they, they, don't, they don't see it that way. Um, but it was hard enough just to draw an audience in there. We're tucked back in, no street signage. Like, so um, when we opened, we had no tables in the whole restaurant. I couldn't afford to buy tables or anything. We had an open room with like, that was it. So the, after the first day we opened, we were calling people's numbers out. We had a bar top that went around the room. So people were standing like at a food truck event. The next day, we bought tables with the cash we brought in from day one. No, that's got badass. tables. Then, like the next week, we put in like a dividing, like a little little wall to make it so there was an order area. The next week, with the cash, we put in an actual order counter because we didn't have that before. So you had a blank slate going in, and you just built from the cash flow. We tore, like, we, we tore the floors off. We poured concrete for the floors. We did white tile on the walls because we're like that's timeless and pretty sterile. Yeah. And we put some taxidermy fish around with chalkboards, and that was our branding package to start. What? And then over time, it's like, okay, let's put some reclaimed wood in over here. Let's build a booth over here. Yeah. Um, let's stop microwaving the food and actually cook it so we got equipment. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck did I miss? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so what? Okay, so from there, what happens next? Like, what? when do you get into store two? When are you like, all right, this is working? Or do you go to, do you start franchising after that? What's the deal? Oh man, how long is this podcast? No, Yo, we're kidding. gonna go, man, Cause, we're gonna go. Cause, Cause at that point, right? So what's funny is, is that, so initially it was, okay, here's this plan. We're gonna build out the first location and I'm gonna go to a bank, I'm gonna scale, I'm gonna get money, and I'm gonna build out two, three, four, five, six. Well, it wasn't like that, right? It was like, shit, we've got bills and we're bleeding money. And Cause I, even if you're six, even if like people are coming in the door and you're packed, like it's gotta be pretty hard to like account for like what is next month going to look like? Yeah. 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 What's not only is what next month's going to look like, but like we didn't have the capital to bring on an, uh, you know, or outsource a CFO or have an in-house bookkeeper. Like, I mean, we're literally general ledger kind of figuring out our putting systems in place to figure out what's our cost of goods. Are we bleeding money? Are we making money? Like the, it's easy on the food truck. It's really easy on the food truck. It's like cash in, cash out, you yeah. know, but now you've got so many more rolling expenses. Um, Rent, so gas lines, electricity, like the whole everything. line. Yeah. yeah, it's tough. So what I did was I was like, I got to increase cash flow in here. So I actually created, I changed the model off the bat. I, I flipped to a flex casual model. I started doing fast casual by day, full service at night. We totally turned into a full service restaurant at night. So people sat down and you people went and took their down. order. I had servers, I had what? waiters and waitresses in there to increase check average. We, had, we got a beer and wine license and I started doing like, it's funny, man. We had a full bar menu rolling because even with a beer and wine license, it's 20% alcohol is the breakdown. It's not that you can't have liquor. You just can't have anything over 20% alcohol. Ah, uh, got it. They start, there's a whole line of alcohols with that's fermented alcohol, not distilled. So they can, do, shy at they can do like vodka at 20%, tequila at 20%. So we started doing like vodka tonics. We started doing like a full bar menu out of this to bump up the check average. And uh, that got us through. That got us like six months in where we were, People were coming in. We had reservations. We would have like a two-hour wait, like a full-service restaurant. I started rewriting the menu every day. At night, I was doing $30 plated, like finer dining items out of there. And was that 
was like that finer dining experience like working for you? Do you see like you're able to like book reservations and stuff, which is nice because you could see like, oh shit, we're booked yeah, out for exactly. like a month at a time. But was that like taxing on you? Like, oh yeah, because it, it was just me. So I was rewrite every single night. I would write a new menu based on like what we had or what we could get. And, and it was only me. I was the only guy that could do it. So I worked seven days a week. I worked from, when we opened up in April, I took my first day off in September. And it was literally the guy cooking every single night and then managing day service. Um, because we would shut down for 30 minutes and we would put a hostess stand out. And we would change the whole format of the room. And the counter where people would order the food for a fast casual yeah. would turn into a bar. It was, it was like, As, during this part, were, did you feel like, dude, am I doing the right thing here? Or am I like, is this? It's or, survival. You're so in it at that point, you can't be objective. You're just like, I need these numbers to survive and get by. I'll figure it out later. Yeah. Like, oh, I'll, I'll think this over tonight. And then yeah. by the time you get home, you're so dead ass yeah. tired that you have to wake up the next morning, you're done. And you have to repeat it again. Otherwise, yeah. the restaurant closes. Mm -hmm. That's some scary shit, man. Well, it's funny because everybody now comes into it like, I feel like, maybe this has always been the case, but I feel like now it's just so sexy to be an entrepreneur. It's like, oh, I've got this new idea for an app. Like, it's gonna, it's like, you can scratch and sniff or what, you yeah, know, whatever, yeah, like yeah, yeah, somebody's yeah. app is, and everybody wants to do this. But for us being kind of, quote, entrepreneurs, at that point, it was just survive. Yeah. Do what you gotta do. If we have to flip to full service, if we have to get a beer and wine license and borrow to do that, like, we just had, for me at that point, it was just do what I have to do to pay rent. Yeah. And make a little bit of money and we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, You're a real entrepreneur. Like that's some real shit. Cause I, I agree with you that whole app, like the new, like Silicon Valley go after funding. Like, yeah, it's that I don't want to like, that's not easy, but it's also not as hard as what you just described. Like you actually went into it knee deep and were like, this has to work or I'm fucked. Yeah. And like, that's some real, that's some real entrepreneur shit. And then you just, and then it's just, you just, you just do it. And I know that that's right. That's like, <laughs> I, I can't believe that's such a fucking cliche, but, but, but it's true. It's like, you just, it's, it's not, you don't think about it. Like people all, they, they, they're like, oh, okay. So, you know, kind of what's the, what's the strategic plan on this? It's like, I don't know. You just fucking get up and do it. You just, you, you do it. You do, cook, like, you're you moving so food. fast. Yeah. You do it. And, it. and it's funny because for me at the time, now nowadays everybody asks, like, oh, Andrew, we want to speak. Can you speak on this panel on like customer service or this or that? And, you know, it's, 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 it's like there's not much to talk about. It, you're, you're, you just – if a customer has a problem, give them their money back. Like this was my mentality when we opened. It's, customers would come in. If they complained, give them their money back. I, don't, I can't afford for this dude – to be pissed over fifteen dollars and yeah. tell his friends it's not good. Like, give him his cash back, right? So, when you look at our financial statements from the first year, our comps and discounts are like like if industry average, let's say, is like six percent on comps. We were like twenty five percent. Like, Jeez. we gave away twenty five percent of our food. Yeah. I'm not even kidding. That's crazy. And and that's what that's and I and I and I parallel that to the just do it story because it's like don't sit and intellectualize about like well you know if I give this guy's money back then the next guy's gonna come. and is that really the type of <laughs> is that the type of platform that I want for my customers like no you just give him his fucking money back yeah you know? and that's some real stuff because it's like you weren't funded at this point no you know what I mean so like it's your money that you're giving up but you understood the the greater picture like I'm building a brand here so if yeah. one person doesn't feel right about my brand. That's not good long term. No, no, exactly. And it wasn't even my money. I borrowed from friends and family. Which is even worse. It's so scarier. It like, yeah. I mean, it was because 
I don't mind if I lose my own money. Yeah. You know, like I go to the casino, have a couple pops and throw down, you know, a thousand bucks on blackjack and lose in five minutes. Like, well, I'm the idiot. Yeah. But if I do that with somebody else's money, like I'm not just the idiot. I'm the idiot with like no moral compass and the now I'm not going to sleep for a year because I lost that guy's money. Let's sidestep. At this point, you're in the restaurant, right? Six months in ish. Are you single still? What's what's yeah, the deal? Oh, you have a family? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no. So you haven't met your wife yet. Nope. Spoiler nope. alert. You have yeah. a wife. No. <laughs> yeah. <kids>. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So you're still the the reason I ask is you're you're reporting to yourself at this point. You know what I mean? Like you're not like the risk is still on you and the people you borrowed money from. Yeah. So you do you feel what what point do you get above water at the first restaurant? I mean, to be honest with you, we, we, we do and we don't. So what we were doing, the, the first restaurant starts to become profitable, but knowing that I wanted to scale this whole thing out, we were almost, we, we were kind of, we were funding corporate growth through the profits of the first restaurant and then we were taking loans out. So what does that mean? What does that mean for people who have no idea what you're talking okay, about? Okay, so basically, you're so, funding so you've, got, you've got this concept, right? And, and you know, you're making a little bit of money, but if you want to go and you want to spread the word about a next restaurant you're opening, you want to market that, right? So if I'm going to, you know, spend money on marketing that goes above and beyond the money that I'm making, but then the halo effect is that more people know me. So it's going to be easier to get to the next location. Or if I want to fundraise, right, I need a graphic designer to build a deck out for me. And I need a finance guy to start to project that for me and do the numbers that I don't have the time to do. I got to pay that guy. Well, my the four walls of my operation can't afford to be paying the dude that's thinking about location too. So uh, you've yeah. got to lose a little bit of money to fund what's going to happen for the next location. And we were doing that, but then you can, you can see the fascinating thing about the restaurant industry, it's cash based. So there's a lot of, I call them predatory loan lenders where they'll loan you money on future sales at yeah. like 40% interest. Yeah, it's crazy. But the idea is if I know that I've got like a big deal in the wings or I'm going to get capital or I've got some something that's gonna, like a waterfall event that's going to come through with cash, whether it's... You can re- take advantage of those predatory deals. Yeah, and then, it's you scary know... And, yeah, and- exactly. So we were just kicking the can down the road. Like that, I was like a gambler. It was like, okay, well, I'm going to take a loan out on sales for this to fund hopefully what is going to be location number two by marketing for it and getting it done. So did you take... Lo- you took... a quote unquote predatory loan oh, yeah. out on the future sales of restaurant one to yeah. open restaurant two or well, to yeah, create yes, no, the, to try the and corporate build, structure. To try and build some type of a corporate infrastructure to figure out what the heck we were going to do next, basically. Um, so store one had to be, and also you know, to pay for the positions to really make store number one Work. what you want it to be. Yeah. So so it's it's a lot of juggling money and cash. But what we ended up doing, this is where it gets, it gets interesting, we were getting pitched on franchising right off the bat. Cause store one. Store one, yeah, right off the bat. Like we had great social equity, right? Mm-hmm. And a and a huge and an awesome following online. We had this this mission statement that kind of really evolved from this notion of marine stewardship and getting people to eat more seafood but the right types of seafood. People people are very passionate about the ocean and eating seafood. Like we all it's like it's funny because everybody knows you should eat more seafood. It's like, oh, it's a Mediterranean diet, it's healthy, it's good for you. But then when it comes to actually doing it, they're like where do I get it? Do I get it frozen or fresh? Like, should I buy it from this counter? Is there mercury? Is there PCB? And so they don't eat it. It's daunting and it's scary. Yeah. Even me on the foodie side, like I still don't know if sushi is good for me. I yeah. still don't know if 
I'm going to die for my bluefin tuna. I have no idea. And yet, but yet part of you probably is like, but seafood's good for me. But it's so good for me. Right? So it's, it's so this, good for me. It's like this conflicting message. And what we were able to fulfill in the market was, okay, if I go to Slapfish, I know it's good for me because they're telling me where it came from. They're telling me how it was fished. They're telling me who the fisherman is, showing me pictures of the fishermen. They're telling me why it's sustainable. We can have that conversation with customers and explain to them why this farm piece of seafood isn't bad for you, mm. how this is actually better than the wild piece. So, so like for example, shrimp, I don't, we, I'll never serve wild shrimp. We'll only do farm shrimp, but yet the consumer thinks farmed is bad, right? Yeah, but farm is very bad. That's what I hear. Right, you know but, what I mean? like but it's actually, that. that's not the case, right? And I, and I use this as the example with consumers is that you're not catching one shrimp with a fishing pole. You're putting a big net out there to get your shrimp. Well, 60% of shrimp is bycatch, turtles, sea turtles, all this stuff. When you farm it, there's no bycatch. There's no waste. It's okay. It's like, and, and I can't handle the idea of throwing away good fish yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so that's why we buy farm f- seafood but huh. we do it from an organic farm where they don't use chemicals or pesticides or any of that stuff and it's the same shrimp it's water's water right so we're able to tell the consumer about that and explain that to, that, to yeah. them so they love that so back to franchising people were like this is great now we can fulfill this demand for seafood through this scalable cool sexy whimsical seafood brand so we were getting hit up by people who already had like 10 five guys franchisees and maybe mm. or multi-unit operators who were just looking to round out their portfolio with a seafood option. Yeah. Um, you didn't like them. What's that? You didn't like them. What was it? Well, I didn't know what to think because in my mind, franchising is a bad word, right? From a chef's perspective, franchising means dilution, people messing with your system. Like, yeah. How many times do you hear about franchisee, franchisor lawsuits? I mean, we've seen the movie The Founder. Or yeah, The Founder is great. Yeah, it's great. And I mean, it, it, very, it makes him evil. Like yeah. It seems evil towards the end. Like, yeah. And it's the person who came in and ruined it for the f- original founders of McDonald's. Yeah. So, so, so I was kind of, so we were working with a group called Fransmart. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with those guys. I am familiar. It's the, they're the group that brought halal guys out here. Yeah. And they made five guys what it is. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so Dan Rowe, the founder of, of Fransmart, he grew up here in Huntington Beach, went to Huntington Beach High School, and they have an office out here. Every, when we had the food truck, he would stop by the food truck all the time and eat there and be like, hey, here's my card. Talk to, <laughs> if you ever want to talk franchising, whatever. So we kind of blew it off and didn't think much of it. He was persistent, kept coming back to us. And, I was like, nah, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And then he comes to me six months in with the first restaurant. He's like, I got a guy in the Middle East. We've already done a deal with on another brand. He wants your brand to buy it out for the whole GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council. So that's the six states, Oman, Qatar, Dubai, or UAE, Saudi, Yemen, all these countries. Um, And I'm like, he's like, but then you, you, once you decide to do that, like you're a franchising. So this guy flies in from Bahrain, like royal money, and yeah. he, we like meet, and we leave the meeting. He's like, yeah, I want to, I want to open Slapfish in the Middle East, 75 locations I'll sign Jeez. up for. And it was like, right? Like, yeah. oh my God, like this just changed everything. Yeah. Are you like, do you, do you like, yo, this is money, bro. I cashed. I, I remember, <laughs> I, I was like, at the time, the standard was really cool up in LA, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to the standard, I'm going to party. Like... I'm going to be able to get in. I'm going to totally take out another credit card. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get another predatory loan because I yeah. got 75 units, baby. Yeah, that was it. Like, and, and in my mind, I was like, this is it. We've, we've made it. Like, I was like, we made it, you know? And which, you know, fast forward, that actually isn't the case. But what happened? <laughs> so what happens is, it's funny. Because that deal fell through. No, the deal went through. It went through. The guy bought us. He bought us for 75 locations across the Middle East. Now, the, the, the economics of a deal like that, 
they put up a certain amount of money up front, right? So that's what, so we got that money up front, which wasn't a hey, what's that? Which wasn't a <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, that's not cocaine that you just touched on the table. I yeah, totally. To Something pow- just caught my eye over here. We're a food beast. It's probably just powdered donuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah there or we go. Or it's cocaine. <laughs> Anyways, so, continue. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, we, uh, <laughs> so, so basically, we, we use some of that, those funds. The majority of the money to do that deal was supposed to come down the road, right? So you get a little bit up front to support your infrastructure. So... Because you're we, supposed to support them actually back, yep, right? Like exactly. Three, was it like something like a three-year, like... They were going to do that 75 locations over 10 years. They were supposed to, up to open up two in the first year and then 10 in the second year. So I flew over to the Middle East. We did site selection. I was over in the Middle East like five times so in You're Dubai. very hands-on at this point, like yeah. trying to like make sure... Because isn't that scary too? Like obviously like 75 locations, y'all, I'm cashed out, I'm good. But also like this is your baby. It's our and, baby. And here's the deal. They're not going to give us the majority of the money until year one, the end of year one. So it has to do well. It, well, it has to do well. And I have to provide the support to make the, keep them happy so I can get that paycheck, right? Yeah. So what's funny is that, of course, everyone's like sees the 75 units. They're like, you're rich. And we're like, no, not <laughs> at all. Because guess what? To provide that support and to send a team to the Middle East to fly over there, I hired like a VP of operations, all this stuff. I had to take out more loans because I'm like, Jeez. well, I got X amount of dollars coming in in a year. I'll take out loans on that right now no. to support that. Because they're not paying you. They're like, people don't understand. Flights to the Middle East are expensive. Flights like tw- anywhere expensive. Yeah. Like, it's like $20,000. Right? Going back and forth, yeah. sending a team over there. We have to wait for the store to open to make the royalties to get the cash flow. Right? So we go in. Now, we're like six months in. He's like, oh, by the way, this is the franchisee. Now, he buys also Lemonade. You know the brand Lemonade? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He bought Fuddruckers. The guy bought um, Cali Burger, uh, Chicken Now, Elevation Burger. He bought like seven brands. I could just imagine this Middle Eastern dude rolling up and just be like, I like all the brands here. Very nice. Can I smoke hookah and all of these? That's, that's like... <laughs> I can say that because I'm probably my fucking cousin who tries to do all this. Anyways, well, well, but, it, but it's true because American, they love American brands. Yeah. So what it is, is it's a, it's, a, it's a gold race, right? So everybody wants to get the exclusives to that brand. So he was a master franchise, franchisee, which means then he could sell sub deals. Ooh, so he okay. owned the rights, but then what his what he wanted to do was flip it for sub deals to somebody else. Uh. So um, so what happened was though, he the guy had no restaurant experience. So, so to, to cut to the chase a year later, he's like, they opened and they're like, yeah, we're not gonna do this anymore. What? So now I'm sitting here with a VP of operations, this whole corporate infrastructure. Plus, remember those loans I was yeah, talking about? Yeah, well, 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 year one, deal's done. So we used some of the money and we opened our second location, which was Laguna Beach. Yeah. Now we've signed into the franchise world. Like we are a franchise at this point. So now it's, okay, well, let's get registered to sell. We also use a lot of the money to, 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 to fran- sell franchise in the U.S. You need like $50,000 to set up your systems. Right. To, to register, to get an attorney to do all that. Like it's a, the regulatory process. Because franchising is just a bunch of contracts, right? Like it's like, imagine, and, and you're selling again. Imagine going and sitting in the DMV for, for four weeks. That's what it takes. That's what it equivalent. That's what you have to do to franchise. Because <laughs> does it feel like when you franchise... And again, you you told me this also before. Like you also feel like you're very green to franchising. I yeah. mean, the whole the whole idea of it. But it's almost like people are like, oh, maybe that's better than raising money. But isn't franchising like raising money with a bunch of different people over and over that's and exactly over? Exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Franchising is a is a financing vehicle. But 
my perspective on it has changed from day one to now. Now we are a franchisor. People are like, oh, you're a restaurateur. I'm like, no, I'm a franchisor. It's totally different. And everybody asks me, they're like, well, why aren't you opening corporate stores too? You're doing all franchise because unless you get massive amounts of private equity or capital to come in and support the system, you it's one or the other. Mm. I, it would be unfair of me to start running all my own corporate stores because then I couldn't devote my time to supporting the franchisees. And those people invested in us. Yeah. They invested a lot of money to build a slapfish. So, you know, you really need to invest back in them and in being a franchisor. But it's funny because, you know, it, it, it's a totally different ballgame when you're a franchisor. So today, how many corporate-owned stores do you have? Two. Then, two. Two corporate, and we've got... Uh, 162 franchise deals inked. Jeez. So we have actually now, and that doesn't include the Middle East. The Middle East deal fell apart. Right. We actually had. These to, are brand new. These are like. Yeah. Okay. How do you decide? And give me give me a lay of the land of where these are, because like there's a heavy amount in California, SoCal yep. specific. Yeah. None in NorCal, right? Not no. no. Um, by design, where are these locations opening up? Is it like where you think they'll work best? Is where you know you could source good fish and get get it there properly? What's what's the idea there? Great question. Great question. I'll tell you what's funny is that initially it was right like and it and it makes sense. It seems totally natural and organic to target the Chicago, New York, Miami, right? Like let's hit Maine and Maine of the USA. Right. Why wouldn't you? But, but I started looking at the cost to open in those places and the, the pedigree of the franchisee. And we I stayed away from those markets, right? And we recently did a deal with a group out of Utah that owned a significant amount of Five Guys. They were like the first group to bring Five Guys kind of west of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Remember when there was like that, is Five Guys going to go west? <laughs> it was like the Five Guys in and out like drama. And then they finally went over the hump. They were the group that did it. Ooh. So they've got tons of experience in the fast casual world, but with burgers. And they were like, yeah, we're going to kind of divest in our five guys, but we, we want the next top brand, and we we'll really believe in Slapfish. Our headquarters is in Salt Lake City. We want to open in Utah. And I was like, ah, I mean, what Utah. about like Texas or, yeah. or Nevada? Let's do Vegas. Let's do this. I'm like, no, no, no. It's going to be great. It's going to be good. So we're like, all right, fine. So the, recently, our first location out of SoCal, because our other locations here in SoCal are a franchise. So we've got a couple franchise part, local franchise yeah. partners here. Our first out-of-state location, Lehigh, Utah. Now, I've never been to Lehigh, Utah. Is that surprising? Not at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> what is, what's in so Lehigh? Lehigh is not even Salt Lake City. It's 45 minutes south of Salt Lake City, like 20 minutes north of Provo. It's in this little area called, which is no longer little, but it's called Silicon Flats. And the reason they call it that is because Facebook moved part of their headquarters there. All these Silicon Valley brands that are getting taxed up the wahoo in California, California are moving to business-friendly states like Texas and Utah, right? Utah is known for just being like very kind of staunch conservative, no taxes. Like they're come and bring your business here. Yeah. So all these, there's like the Adobe headquarters is right there. All these techie brands. And we opened a Slapfish in Lehigh, Utah in the middle of all of this in March. Just to give you an idea behind the numbers, I, I'm, I'm making these numbers up. If we do <laughs> 1.5 million in sales here in SoCal, we'll do 3 million in Lehigh. What? We doubled our business. Like, it blew my mind. I Holy mean, Utah yeah. of all places. Yeah. Like, so it changed my whole philosophy on how we're going to grow. I'm no longer targeting New York, Miami, and these places. I'm looking at, we, we signed a deal for Tulsa, Oklahoma. We signed a deal for um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. We're opening up in September during the Balloon Festival. Jeez. So we're looking now at, like, these 
secondary, tertiary off, yeah. cities that normally get forgotten about. These are the people that follow us on Instagram that are like, please come, like, oh, why are you gonna go open up in Miami, all this, like, so we're, get, we're giving it to the people. <laughs> I love, well, I love it. That's so. That's that's how that's how you've been deciding. That's like, so. Now that's my strategy is let's go into these secondary cities that always get never get the pick of the litter. They, but they know our brand. You know, and they they don't have an option. Their options are Subway or Mickey D's. So for someone who's naive to fish sourcing and proper fish mm-hmm. sourcing, Huntington Beach in Southern California made a lot of sense. Right, Middle East still kind of made sense. I'm not, I'm not completely versed in what's going on in seafood yep. in the Middle East, but I know it's a prominent thing, and that probably made sense to you at the time. But like, how do you get fresh seafood and sustainable f- seafood mm-hmm. to those places that you're talking about? Well, I'll Lehigh, tell you a couple Utah. things. Ninety-five percent of the seafood you eat in SoCal doesn't come from California, let alone the USA. Damn. Remember, eighty percent of our seafood is imported. Let's try okay. Most of which is from China. So that that shrimp that you're eating. I mean, that's not from California, you know? Okay, so, but your mission, though, is, and going back all the way to the aquarium, yeah. is, like, you want more of that to be happening and more fishing to hap- we happen want, in the U.S. Yeah. So, I want U.S. seafood served or seafood that comes from a certified sustainable stock. So, from the Marine Stewardship Council, MSC certified sustainable seafood. So, what's funny is that what we do is we work a couple angles. We work with a group called Sea to Table where they connect with the fishermen all around the docks around the U.S., 52 different docks. And we can get seafood off the dock, either immediately flash frozen, which this is the other thing. People think frozen seafood's bad. All the seafood you've ever eaten has been frozen. If you've eaten sushi, it was frozen. That's how they kill bacteria. If seafood is frozen right on the boat half the time. What's fresh in the seafood case was frozen. Actually, you want to freeze a lot of seafood to firm it up. So the notion that they might freeze it at the dock and then ship it out to you, that's a good thing. Okay. So we can get seafood right from the dock in New Jersey, from Florida, from Maine, our lobster um, is all Maine lobster, and we can get it just shipped right into Utah or shipped into Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's the same seafood we're serving in SoCal. It's Ooh. the same product. It's, it's, it's be coming through the same distribution source. Um, so you're, I, th- I think you, you mentioned it to someone in the past. I can't, I can't remember who you were talking to, but you mentioned it's not, the challenge isn't getting the good seafood. It's like telling the message of why the food, the seafood's actually good. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's exactly. the harder part. Exactly. And continuing that message. And as it grows and getting like people on the ground in those areas. So how does, how does like marketing change? from you having two stores and you know how to drive traffic to those two stores. Now you got to support 160. Like what changes? Like you used to be running one Facebook account. Still, still doing that. We, it's, it's still, it's one Instagram account. It's one Facebook. I don't do satellite accounts. It's all just myself and, and now my wife, we run all of our social and it's, and it's now, of course, you know, there's like, we talked to groups about like doing various digital marketing campaigns and understanding all the new Facebook algorithms to, yeah. to monetize on the proper campaigns and, and make it work and drive traffic for the openings. But a lot of it is still, I mean, organic. It's incredibly organic. I mean, um, so your marketing's on point and I, it's been on point since day one. I went to your uh, Brea location opening. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Awesome, awesome location. It's cool in Brea. It's close to where I grew up, so that's fun. That was a, mil- a million um, food beast followers that day, right? Yeah, that was a million food beast followers that day. We were crossing it, and then like it was badass. Anyways, that was fun. Damn, you have a good memory. Shit. Anyways, let's talk marketing for a second. 
and I'm not going to name names, but I remember <laughs> because because I think what you're doing is so valuable to other entrepreneurs, especially in in the space that you're in. You at I think at that event you had a PR group and a digital like social group working to bring people to that event. Mm-hmm. There was like two lists, two sign up lists. Like, did you come from like the PR side? Or did you come from like the social media side? I'm just curious which one you think worked better. Like, or do you feel some type of way about like PR versus social media marketing? Do you have tips for people? Like, what are you learning there? Yeah. So it's me. It's it's kind of there. So on the publicity side and PR side, we we invest a lot in in PR. Um, okay. Uh, we work with a great firm out of Chicago right now that does helps us with all of our openings. We work with also a local firm. Um, we work with uh, Krupa Consulting out of out of LA, and she's phenomenal. She's in in on all the yeah, familiar. They do good events, work. Yeah, all that and and what so so that's on publicity. But then we also you know there, there's the influencer side, right? You yeah. Know, and I don't know if that's a bad word nowadays or not. I've made that no, joke but is that. that a huge part of your business? Because you guys have amazing photos running through your feed, and I think that's what differentiates Slapfish. I feel from like the cornball, like high end fish restaurants, and like the other ones, like Rubio's. I don't give a shit. I'll yeah, you got to make it like, point. I mean, you, you you have to. So so on the publicity side, what that does that builds our brand, right? So that's just that's building our brand. That's getting us credibility. That's organizing and kind of consolidating our messaging, right? But then on the influencer side, that's what's getting you immediate feet through the door. Okay. And then ultimately they connect, right? It's kind of like that point at which marginal cost equals marginal utility in the econ- economic sense of it all. Yeah. What the hell am I talking about? So we... Uh, <laughs> I was like trying to synthesize it because I'm an econ major and I'm like, uh, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> Is that, wasn't it? Isn't that... Uh, no, that's, that's actually correct. Where you that's maximize close. profits. Yeah, yeah, that's close. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's close. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So, so the uh, um, I we're still that, naked at this point. This is really weird. Uh, we, yeah, yeah, it is. It is <laughs> exactly my bell curve is uh, just took a, a lateral. Okay, so the <laughs> what the fuck is so going on? it's kind of like they both work in tandem, but they have different different goals. One is really kind of building the house, and one is actually getting you know is is it's like sharpening a knife, right? You're going to create the bevel, and you're going to create the edge on the on the core stone, but then on the fine stone, you're going to get that really nice sharp edge, right? But they need to work together. Um, That's really valuable because people influencers are important, I think. Oh yeah, uh, because I'm sure you see it. Like if, if a big influencer posts your food, like you probably get a shit ton of traffic that next day. Mm-hmm. But the one thing with influencers you can't control that PR does a really good job of is influencers aren't gonna complete your brand messaging for you. They're no, not gonna exactly. get you placements and you know whatever KTLA or whatever exactly. news station and PR kind of like massages all that stuff out and is that yep. connective tissue. So there's a world where they both live and it really helps your brand. Yeah, and they and they have to live together. And that's the funny thing. You don't want, they're totally different. So it doesn't replace, it, it influence the the world of kind of digital media marketing, I'll call it that, because I, I almost feel like I'm downgrading by saying food influencers. I know when I talk to some of my friends, I won't name names. They're like, "Don't call me a, f- call me a fucking food influencer." I'm like, <laughs> "You're just you're so specific, man. That's granular. I'm way more than that. I'm way more than that. If your whole feed is food and you get invited to restaurants and eat for free, you are a food influencer. You said it, not me. Uh, but but they they have to work together." And, and you know what's funny, man? And I'll talk, I mean, let's get into the fun of it. Like, I, people people, probably in the industry, 
don't like me for sometimes bringing those two together. Like there's, there's strife between those two, right? Like old school PR and new school food influencer. Well, I think old school PR is threatened, but the way you're positioning it, I think is beautiful is because they shouldn't be threatened. Like no. there's, there's such a good place for really good PR people, not terrible PR people, but like if you're good at your job and PR, you're invaluable, mm-hmm. I think. And then if you're a really good influencer or you can wrangle influencers, you're extremely valuable as well. But no, I feel like know your place. Eventually someone will crack the code and try to meld between the two. But I don't think there should be that kind of friction. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating. And it's become such a political world that I've even, I've got, I've taken a step back. It's funny because like, I, I don't even know anymore what's real and what's not in the beginning. With Instagram, it was kind of just like it was real. The, the whatever the you know, I don't, I don't think that the game was being, um, you, you know, they weren't. Uh, it wasn't a con. But now I look at things and I'm like, I know a lot of it's fake. And so how do you filter through that on kind of the food influencer side? But the same can be said on the PR side. Like a lot of that is also padding numbers and using just like most. To, I mean, if we're straight up, most PR and most Instagram is fake. It is what it is. Like, because the world of PR, and to get more granular for people who aren't as familiar on the PR end, a PR person will come to someone like Andrew or, or any other restaurateur and be like, "I'm going to run your PR, and I'm going to get you placements on. Maybe you're going to do a seafood demo on, whatever, the morning news at five, right? Yeah. Like, essentially, it was two favors that got pulled, and now." I'm just using you as an example. Andrew shows up on a morning news channel and talks about sustainable seafood, plug slapfish, whatever. That's a placement. No one's paying, no one's exchanging money, but now that's gotten translated into the Instagram world where you invite 20 influencers, they all eat for free and they all post through their feed. Yeah. Now everyone that didn't go to that restaurant sees that food in their feed and now that was advertising that didn't get paid for. So like it's translatable. Yeah. They're, they're both doing, they're like, they're both doing the good work that they're doing, but if people are true to themselves, Instagram is very fake, and so is so is so is like traditional news media outlets. Yeah, and I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I, eventually, some people, it'll be nice to get more honest there. But at the end of the day, like if a picture of food looks really good, and I go to eat it and I have fun and I enjoy it, then no harm, no foul. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. So that's crazy. So how do you, um, I kind of like to compare you, uh, fuck that one. I'm going to cut that one out. Uh, I like it. Can you talk to me about two birds and Jadori chicken? So you, 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 you killed it with slapfish and you're continuing to grow. So I feel like it's still at the beginning. What? Wait, a thousand restaurants that's, that sounds like a good meter for you or what <laughs> I don't know man it's it, you know I really don't know it's it, it's one of these things where it, it's crazy because still it's just it's me and it's like our, our line co- it's our staff from our corporate stores and we've got really good our franchisees have a really good staff so they're helping to build the system but at the end of the day it's still it's like my wife works full-time in a business it's me and then like couple other people who have been with us for like a while on the culinary side like we don't have the full vp the cfo all this stuff still you guys and so it's weird for me to think out past where we're at right now we're opening up our ninth location in a week here then we're immediately opening up 10 and we're gonna have 30 open over the next 12 months and i can't i can't even think past the next location i'm still working on huntington beach 
like I'm still like I'm still thinking about Huntington Beach and driving sales there and increasing AUV average average unit volumes and like what are we going to do to stay fresh and like continue to stay relevant, keep the competition out or at least stay above. Who's competition? You know, I, it's funny. I, I see it as indirect competition. Well, di- my direct competition comes from an indirect sector of the industry. Our competition are people like Shake Shack or people like mm. other like, like-minded like fast casual brands. There's not necessarily the immediate seafood competition. Like I wouldn't even consider pokey competition, right? Because I'm never like, oh, I'm going to go get slapfish or I'm going to get a lobster roll. Oh, now I'm going to go get pokey. Like I don't think about them in the same thought. I might have pokey for lunch and a lobster roll for dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it's just, it's the fast casual experience that's technically competition. Talk to me about Two Birds and Butterleaf because you say you're still in the weeds with Slapfish and then you open up <laughs> two concepts that have nothing to do with Slapfish. Yeah, I know, I know. Two Birds is your chicken concept that. and Butterleaf is a kind of a vegan experience, yeah, right? Yeah, veg- I don't veg- even know what to call it, man. You know what's funny? We designed that and everybody's like, oh, are you going to be vegan? Like, what kind of vegan? Does it have honey or beeswax or this? And I'm like, I didn't even know there were various forms of veganism. Like, <laughs> and actually the word itself scares me. Um, but really it was just, let's come up, let's do vegetarian food porn that meat and target meat eaters. So like we're, we're not targeting vegans we're not targeting that veggie tribe. We're literally just trying to do really fun shit with vegetables. Yeah. I mean, it's that simple. That's dope. And they um, both, again, out the gate have great branding. Like Two yeah. Birds branding is awesome. Yeah. That's a fun, that's a fun one. And then, and then with that, it was like, it wasn't that we want, so many people are getting in on the chicken game now. Right. And for us, it wasn't, oh, we want to reinvent anything, but it was just, I thought there is a void of good chicken. And by good chicken, I mean the actual chicken product. Talk about Jadori chicken. Cause I just, I just got put on game right now by Costa, but you guys use Jadori chicken. Yep. What, what is that? Just give it. It's, 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 so it's a never frozen, totally like free range chicken. That's not, doesn't have any water weight injection to it. So a lot of chicken that you eat, you, the, the, the state, the government allows up to like 10% water injection in your chicken. So when you get like those plump chickens and it shows like water retention, that can be like 8%, 9%. Story chicken has virtually no water injection in it. So what you're actually getting is an undiluted chicken product. So it's creamy, it's gamey, it's really, really rich. It's a fine dining quality chicken. You're seeing it at all the finest restaurants in LA. We're stupid for using Shidori chicken because I'm paying two times to three times more than I would if I was just buying the crap chicken product. And you're trying to hit fast casual prices yeah, again. Exactly. So we're running a high. Our model, just so you know, our model, and the reason why I think a lot of people don't like us and they say we're, we shouldn't be a franchise when they look at our financials, is that A, we do well when we drop a good profit because we don't follow through on really, really, really high profile sites and put a lot of money into marketing. It's organic and we don't pay for a lot of it. But B, we have a higher than average sales volume and we drive money on sales by serving the quality of fine dining at the cost and the convenience of fast food. We run a high food cost out of Slapfish. And our franchisees always are like, well, what, how are we gonna get down below to this kind of low number? I'm like, we're not. Like that's our model is we're gonna serve better food and lose money on it, not lose money, but run a higher food cost. Right. But we're gonna drive more feet through the door because people are getting a good value on that. Because when the others die off, yeah, you'll still be there, and then it won't seem that high at that point. Well, true, true on that as well. And we're gonna know we're serving a really good food product. So for like, for example, every lobster roll we sell out of Slapfish, I lose money. No way, hands down, lose money. That we don't make leader. Yeah, big time. 
big time. But and I could I could sub it out with crap lobster. I could cut it with imitation lobster. I could decrease the portion size. There's so many. I could switch from knuckle meat or claw meat to leg meat. I mean, and you and I look at the lobster roll competitors around here, and I mean that's what they're all doing. Yeah. But we're just not going to do that. We're still going to get good fresh Maine lobster and pack it five ounces in a lobster roll and lose money on it. Dude, you fucked up a date for me once. I, did <laughs> I, I? went to uh, I went to your Laguna Beach location, <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna grab a quick taco before before this uh, happy hour and i or i was like you know what i'll order two on food beast whatever those things are so big yeah they're like, massive they're massive like they're size of little burritos at any other place like it's just like an open face fish yeah. taco yeah and it's humongous i got the grilled one like i was so full for dinner and i was that <laughs> asshole that i'm just like uh, i'll just get a water but it's crazy so it's all right so kudos to you on how'd the date go it went well. It went okay. well. I was kind of hyperbole on that. It went well. Because, <laughs> I mean, I showed her what I'm showing you right now in this naked body, and it really worked out. Um, Did you eat oysters today? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hard as a rock right now. Anyways, I want to I wanna leave it with one. Uh, all right, so the landscape has changed since you first opened Slapfish on the truck. Let's say... You had to open Slapfish today with everything you know, but you're you're back at the. How old were you? Like 30? Uh, thirty-one. Okay, if you had to open Slapfish today, in the current climate, the way food trucks are now, would you be able to open Slapfish? I wouldn't do it as a food truck now. You wouldn't do it. As I wouldn't a food do truck it as right a food now. truck. I would. I would do it as. What's the next hot thing? I, that's what I would do. So what I would actually do, I think that. I think the new thing that we're going to start to see are commissary kitchens. So you're going to see like iPhone concepts. I would do it that uh, way. So I would have a Slapfish branded restaurant on a phone as an app, and I would have an offsite production kitchen where I would deliver. I would create amazing food, post it all up through the phone, and then I would pay nothing for my rent out of a commissary kitchen in Riverside or someplace, and I would literally just have a team of delivery drivers driving the food out to the people who buy it off their app. Brilliant. No storefront. I love that model too right now. There's one that I like that does that does pizza. It's called Re- not real good pizza. Uh, Big Juicy Slices out of LA. They do oh, the okay. same thing. Very cool. Okay. Um, so that is... I got to check that out. Check it out. Really rad. Um, brilliant answer. Damn, bro. Uh, uh, thank I was, you. I was I, trying to put you on the spot with that. But like, yeah, food truck movement is a little... Is the food truck movement a little softer now? Is, if things have uh, changed into food halls now and the whole nine and yeah and that's a bubble that's gonna burst too the food I'll hall t- bubble be, food halls yeah and you and the two concepts you're talking about are in a food hall yep yep and then when we immediately got pitched on every new food hall project that immediately thereafter and i was like we're never doing a food hall again it's gonna burst because here's what's happening everybody thinks that they can retrofit a shitty food court into a food hall and it's gonna be hot and it's gonna be fun and it's just there's there's you just can't do that i mean that's not sustainable um I mean, aren't malls dead though? Like, so like, it's almost like that's cool to like, if that's the foot traffic of people, the only reason to go to a mall now because Amazon ruined everything yeah. is to go get a dining experience. Yeah. But I guess you're saying like the dining experience isn't fully fledged out in a food hall. I don't know. Like, well, I just think that we're, there's going to be so many, the same way with food trucks, right? There's food trucks events everywhere. There's so many food trucks. It's not elusive. Mm. Back when we started with the food truck, it was like, you get one opportunity to go try this food truck and that's it. Like I remember when when Kogi drove and they parked at Beach Girls off of um, Beach Boulevard. You yeah. know where that is? Like after the four hundred five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And it was like it was like a Friday night in this place that normally is like desolate, and there's just like gutter snipes, poor guys, street dwellers, destitutes laying around there, and uh, drifters, <laughs> and uh, and there's this like line of freaking a hundred hipsters in the most random place because it was like, oh, this is our only chance to get Kogi. Like they crossed over the border with an LA truck, those fucking rebels, <laughs> and then and it was like you get there, like you do it, you fucking do it. But now, I think with food trucks, it's like you know it's accessible, it's available. Excess of supply, decrease in demand. Minimal supply, high demand, you know? And the same goes for food courts in my, or, or, or food halls, in my opinion. There's great concepts. Come, I love them all. Like, I love all the concepts I'm seeing. I think they're such awesome incubators. I just get nervous about the overflow of... Um, on the, the the real estate side. Yeah. I mean, currently, the, the food halls that are in our area, and we're talking about Southern California right now, and then I'm familiar with, like, the New York f- food hall scene. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at least currently, they're different enough. Like, yeah. the branding is different enough, but I think what you're getting at is eventually, one, we're going to run out of real estate for them. Two, they're going to start looking pretty similar. Yeah. Well, and, and the ones that are in place now and the ones that are upcoming, all the projects I've seen are all awesome. I'm looking out, like, a year or two. Yeah. I'm looking out a year or two. Damn, calling it out, baby, calling it out, man. Well, what I don't is, want to be a pessimist. Not no, like no, dick. no. You no, should. I mean, it's good. I mean, we're being real here. Um, well, I was gonna wish you nothing but success in the future. But what does success mean to you? <laughs> this is yo. This is the interview, bro. This is the interview. Oh man, do you hold on? Where's the violin? I gotta cry, don't I? I have to cry. You have to point. cry. We talked about this. You gotta cry. You, I mean, you've done you've done production and film and television and all that. Like, how many times are they in your ear saying, "Make them cry"? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't. I'm not on the caliber of film productions you're on. My shit is uh, internet, baby. Um, I mean, because I would consider you successful. But like, what's what's your what's your definition of success? Like, where are you at there? I don't. You know, it's like I don't know. I, that's a good question. For me, it's just about I, so I can. It's funny because if you took a snapshot right now of our financials, you'd be like, oh, there's much, there's brands that are so much better than them. Like they should, you know, but, but then I think about it and I'm like, think about how many jobs we've created and how many positions we've created. And even the franchisees, they own their own business. You've given them an opportunity to be their own entrepreneur, business owner, like this concept now. And then they hire 20 people each. I think about how many people we can hire. And I'm like, that to me is awesome. Like that's success. Um, You know, the guys in Utah, like these guys have never worked in restaurants in the chef world. And now a lot of are like oh I want to be a chef like this is what I want to do and they're moving up in that system and that's a cool feeling like yeah. that's an element of success for me that's been um, awesome. kind of the human side of it um, but you know ultimately just figure you know ultimately getting people on the seafood side redefining kind of the seafood genre getting people to eat more seafood getting seafood to be a little bit more fun and mainstream and stop being so fucking stuffy um, and uh, on the seafood side and then just pumping out like new fun concepts and giving giving people really good food at a reasonable price amazing good times dude you have anything you want to shout out what what's what's next other uh, than more slapfish restaurants anything uh oh man no no it's all about it's my wife and the kids you know that's it, it. Is. that's my life now dude your kids are so cute thank you holy I appreciate it. cow they're in like it. all those little frames that you buy at like uh fucking tj maxx like this is the really brilliant looking kids you, you know what's it? funny i go to those stores and replace all the with photos of myself and the kids <laughs> Yeah, that's it. You should do that. Another fun thing to do is when you go over somebody's house, like whether it's a Christmas party, it's always good if it's somebody you don't know that well. Go to their room, go into their bedroom, and replace the photos of photos of yourself. That's like my shtick. It's like you remember like the sink bandits in Home Alone. That was like their shtick. Like that's my shtick. Yeah. Oh, I love it. All right, thank you, Andrew. Good time. You guys, this has been Andrew Gruel. Thank you. 
It's been amazing. Follow Chef Andrew on everything. Um, we'll have all that stuff in the in the bio too. You're just at, at Andrew Gruel, Chef Andrew yeah, Gruel. Yeah, I don't even remember what I am. Bro, Andrew all right, we'll, we'll we'll put it we'll put it out there. Go to Slapfish, support some good concepts. Thank you again. Thank you, man. <laughs>